We're continuing in our conversation about God's relentless pursuit. God's story through Scripture and how He is in a redemptive pursuit for us. And so it's good at this point maybe for us to set a, a, a little background, for us to go over and review where we've been. So we'll start at creation. In creation, God establishes the order in which He will receive glory and honor forever. And that order is based on this relationship. A right relationship with Him as God and Father, Creator and Lord. A right relationship with us about who we are in God as His sons and daughters and how He has made us and created us to be caregivers and cultural care people within this world. A right relationship with others, that we are made for community, that we're not made to be in isolation, that we have relationships with one another that cause us to grow and to bring glory to God. And then a right relationship with place, that he has put us somewhere for a reason, for a time, that he gives us that place to bring glory and honor to him. Then the fall comes in. And what we remember about the fall is this, that it is the aberration. It is the thing that was not supposed to be there. And as we look at creation, we know that when God created it, it was good. And that the fall, when it comes in, it doesn't corrupt the goodness of creation. It is still good, but that the fall happens. And it causes pain and death to enter in. That it breaks the right relationship that we're to have with him, with ourselves, with each other, and with place. We not only see that happen in the fall, we see it increase and become even more wicked up to the point of Noah. And in the story of Noah, remember, we see God's preserving of humanity, that his desire to be in a right relationship with those he created, he pulls out of his preservation of Noah. And in Noah, his family increases and begins to grow, that there is this preserving pursuit taking place and that God says he will never destroy the earth in that way again remember he brings back in creation and says it's good and I will not let the sins of my people the sins of those all around cause us to fall short of that we notice that then people begin to build up again and evil begins to increase and we hit the tower of Babel where God spreads people out and sends them and at that point, we find Abram, who later becomes Abraham. And we see this preserving pursuit, this redemptive pursuit, move to a particular person. That God, throughout all people, through this whole cacophony of noise that is taking place, he sees Abram. And he calls him righteous. Not because of anything Abram has done, not because of his faithfulness, but because God establishes his righteousness in him. And out of Abraham, he gives a covenant, a promise, and says, I will make you a great people. I will bless all nations through you. You will be known. And we see that taking place through the patriarchs. But if you remember through the patriarchs, we realize that our own human desires, our own human pursuits, our own human inclinations are bent towards ourselves and not towards glorifying God. But that does not hamper God's pursuit of redemption. That God, through those particular men and their wives, leads forth bringing a blessing to the nation of Egypt in Joseph. And that Joseph, at the very end of Genesis, says, It was for bad that you meant this, but God intended it to save many people. 
400 years pass and we get into the Exodus. And if you remember in the Exodus, we see through Moses, God working and calling his people out of Egypt. And it is a reminder of what redemption looks like. It's his pattern. It restores the relationship that that particular group of people have with God, that they are his people and he is their God. It restores in and of themselves who they are, that they are people as a possession of God. It restores their relationship with each other. They have a better understanding of who they are and how they operate and who they are. And then it restores their relationship with place as they begin to move towards the promised land. Canaan, that place that God so long ago in Abraham had said, this is your place. This is the place that I am taking you to. And then God brings his covenant law to bear on them and says, this is not how you are to have relationship with me, but these things, if you break them, are the things that will break relationship with me. And what this particular people become for all the nations around them is a nation. They begin to move and operate as a nation, and they become a priest. Remember, it says, I will call you my priest to all the people. They mediate and show God's purpose and that redemptive pursuit to all the nations around them. So that's kind of where we've been. Now, how many of you have DVD players still, or Blu-ray players? Yeah? How, how many of you watch TV and you record it on some device to watch it? Yeah. How many of you stream Netflix or Stan or those kind of things? Now, interestingly enough, when you stream Netflix and you want to skip ahead to a favorite part, you kind of have to guess where that part is, right? And you hit it, and then you get the spinning wheel that sort of shows forth, and you wait, and you hope that maybe you hit the right spot, and then all of a sudden it starts, and you're like, yes, sir. You're like, oh, no. The great thing about Blu-rays or DVDs, or in my day, whenever I first started doing this, VHS tapes, is you can hit the fast-forward button and watch scenes appear. Now, depending on how quickly you hit, it might just flash scenes like this, and sometimes you see people moving like this really quickly, right? That's kind of what we're going to do here for a minute, <laughs> all right? Because we're actually going to jump from the Exodus and the giving of the law all the way to David. Now, that's a pretty far jump. And we're going to pass through multiple things as we get there. So just kind of think of it as if you've pushed the fast-forward button on your recorded show, and we're going to see it really quickly. We'll highlight some things that you'll go, oh, I recognize that, I recognize that, and then boom, we're at the scene. Does that make sense? Good. I just wanted to make sure everybody's with me, okay? So after we have the exodus and the revealing of the law, what happens next? We have Moses handing off leadership to Joshua. And Joshua enters into the promised land. They bring this priestly role in, and God says, this is your land. This is the place that I have set you up. And as they get there, all 12 tribes sort of disperse, and they take their little areas and places that they want to be. But what their role is supposed to be, remember, is this priestly role, setting examples for others of what relationship with God is supposed to look like. The problem is, is they don't do that very well. And what takes place is little foreign entities start coming in and trying to take them over. And they'll rally behind somebody, and they will then defeat that. That person will move away, and then this person that we call a judge moves away. They retire or they pass away. 
And so in the book of Judges, what we see is this very tragic cycle that takes place. They enter into this land, they're supposed to be priests, but what they do is they look around and they say, I know our God is really great, but I really like this God. As a matter of fact, what's really taken place, if they've gone from being in Exodus slaves, uh, in Egypt as slaves, in the Exodus wanderers, nomads, and then when they finally hit into Canaan, into the promised land, they move to become farmers, agrarian and land. And what they notice is that the God that they have been following has been one that's been mostly powerfully moving them in a direction. And when they're in the land, they begin to look at all the other gods that people worship that are agrarian gods, that are about fertility and making sure that your crops are good. And they think, well, our God, Yahweh, is good to defeat people. Our God, Yahweh, is good to, to bring us out of slavery. But he might not be that great at getting my crops to grow. And so they began to worship these other gods. They began to take worship of Yahweh and worship of Baal and combine them together. So what takes place is this. God says, I will not have that. I've told you, I will have no other God before me. And he brings subjugation to them in order for them to turn around and see that their God is actually powerful for all things. And what we see happen is this. This nation, which are really 12 tribes that are scattered around in the promised land, they begin to forsake their God. And then God hands them over to another people. And then the people cry out and say, we've been handed over. And God comes through a judge and saves them. And they turn around and go, yes, our God is mighty to save. Our God is mighty to save. You know, he really can't help my crops grow, so maybe I need to... And they get handed over again. And they cry out again, and God saves them again. So that's where we come to this place in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 8 tells us what happens next. It says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn son was named Joel, and the name of his second was Abjah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his way, but turned aside after gain, and they took bribes and perverted justice. So here are these things. All along in the book of Judges, God has set up the judge. But here Samuel says, well, I'll set up the judge. I'll name my sons as the judge. And the elders of Israel, they gathered together, and they recognized what was going on. And they said to Samuel this, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, like all the other nations. See, their desire was, again, not to fulfill their priestly role, not to be a particular people for God, but their desire was to be like everyone else. God. Samuel, give us a king so that we can be like all the other nations. Now Samuel is not pleased by that, and he says to them, I'm not going to do that. And he goes to the Lord, and he prays to him and says, you can't have this happen. And this is what the Lord says. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of which the king shall reign over them. So God says, yes, show them. Give them the king. Let them have it. But then Samuel gives them a warning and tells them that this king will require tithes from them, will require taxing from them, will take their young men away from them, will send them into battle, and they will not really be blessed by having this king. And that king that we know is Saul, the first king. And that king was then put in a place where he should have moved as the person showing who God was. But he didn't. He didn't respect the judge of Samuel. He didn't wait for him when he needed to give sacrifice. And he went in and gave a sacrifice to the Lord on his own, which he was not supposed to do. It broke the commands of God's law. And that's the reason why God moved his love away from Saul. And he called out David. That's where we're at in 2 Samuel, where David is called out. Now, that was pretty quick, right? But what does this story tell us about who God is? Remember, this is the story of God and what he is doing. I think the first thing that we need to recognize about God in this story is that he is not caught on his back foot. When the people come and they say, we want a king, it seems as if, because we know that he didn't want them to have a king, he was their king, that that God maybe was caught on his back foot. That why, why would his people all of, a decide, all of a sudden decide that they needed a king? The judges were operating, not well, but in the way that they were supposed to be operating, bringing them back, saving them. The key to recognize is that for some reason it appears that God acquiesces. He submits almost to the request of this ungrateful people. God enfolds, he brings in Israel's demand, but he moves it into his sovereign purpose, and he transforms it into something that someday will exceed their wildest dreams. They say, we want a king, and God says, okay, I'll give you a king knowing full well what the king will bring to them, which is slavery and pain and exile. And he grabs it and he enfolds into it the covenant that is with David. This covenant that pushes us forward to see Christ. So the first thing that we need to recognize about God is that while it might appear that he is changing, his providence, his sovereignty is still in full effect. He knows what's happening, he knows what's going on, but he is in some way allowing there to be a dance with his people. Now the key is he knows the moves and he knows the song that's playing. The people that are dancing with him don't, he's in the lead. But it is this dance that is taking place. So 
when often we talk about God's sovereignty or we talk about his providence, oftentimes it can become uh, uh, very clinical or it can become very um, uh, staid. And the people, we can close our eyes to it and be fearful of it. Because we think, now if God knows all this stuff, why does he let it happen? But what we see about God here is that while he is in possession of knowing all, of ordaining what is taking place, when he is interacting with humanity, it is very much not a top-down relationship. But it is a relationship of a dance. There's give and take and movement, always knowing that he's in the lead and he knows the song. Now let's be honest. That's a mystery. And as much as I would love to have eloquent words to explain it to you, where I'm at right now, the best that I have found is that it's a dance. And maybe that fits me because I don't dance that well. And so I need someone to lead me, to show me how to dance. The second thing that we see about God is this, that his purpose is still faithfully met by himself. That God's purpose and his pursuit is faithfully met by himself. When we look at David's covenant that is given to him here, we recognize there are these calling backs to the covenant with Abraham. This idea that you'll have a son is the same as Genesis 12, where you will have a people that will be prosperous and your offspring will be prosperous. This idea of place, the place is there. What David is doing is bringing all of these disparate tribes together to form one nation. See, here's what had taken place just before the covenant given. David had defeated, through the power of God and his great care, the Philistines. And he had grabbed hold of the Ark of the Covenant. And he brought the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of Jerusalem. And he said, this is the center of the kingdom. This is the place that God will reside. And it sat there in a tent. The great story that takes place just the chapter before this is that David gets so outrageously excited about the fact that this ark is coming back into, is that he dances very crazily. And his wife, who was Saul's daughter, gets on to him and tells him how he has been uh, uh, disgusting in front of his people. But he was so excited to have God back in the center of the nation. And it's at that point that he recognizes, I'm in this great big house, this house of cedar, yet God is in this tent. But what we recognize is that God is not worried about that because his purposes are being fulfilled within the covenant. He, he actually tells David, you're not actually going to build me a house. Your offspring will. But I, but I, grace, I will establish your house your dynasty, your kingdom forever. Look, it's not stymied by any circumstance that has been self-afflicted or externally inflicted. God's purposes are not stymied. 
They are not slowed down. They are not stopped by anything that we personally do ourselves or by any external thing that happens. The judges didn't stop it. The patriarch's lives didn't stop it. Saul didn't stop it. And David surely won't stop it either. How do we know that? Listen to what he says here. (laughs) It's so great. In verse 14, he says this. I will be to him, speaking of those who are coming, the sons that are coming in the kingdom, a father, and he shall be my son. And when he commits iniquities, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Nothing we do will stymie his established order. Nothing we do can break in to the dance that God is doing with us. Now it might seem like we have a misstep. It might seem like we've stopped hearing the music. But God is working. His purposes will not fail. In this covenant we see it established forever. So what is our response to God then in this story that he reveals to himself? Well, our response is what David's response is. He prays a prayer of gratitude. If you'll read in your own leisure at some point, verses 18 through the rest of this chapter, you will see that David worships God. Here he is. David has said to Nathan, I'm going to build this thing for God. I'm going to do this mighty thing for God. I want to accomplish this thing for God. And God comes in and says, no, let me remind you of who is in control. I am. And David's response is appropriate. He doesn't argue. He doesn't say, no, 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 I really think I should be the one that does this. He sits back and he hears what God has to say to him, this covenant, and he worships God. He says, who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? How marvelous and wonderful you are, Father. Then he prays. He not only is worshiping in this prayer, but he also says, because you have done this, I have the boldness to pray that you keep this going. Because the covenant is true, because it is based on what God has done in his grace, because it's based on his pursuit and not David's pursuit, it empowers him to pray. Just like a child talking to his dad. I want this. I want this. But it moves him to another place as well, which is trust. And trust only comes through recognizing the lordship of God. Now, when we think of him setting up a king, God setting up a king, and that king is supposed to be an example of who God is, not only to the nation of Israel, but to all nations that really the nation will rise and fall based on how that king perceives himself in his relationship to God. Now, as American, I don't have many influences of kings. The one king that we had, we got rid of fairly quickly. You all have a little bit more relationship with kings as a nation and what that looks like. So all that I really have is the baggage that I have from Hollywood. And most of the kings that they show on the screen are fairly corrupt and bad. (laughs) And I wouldn't want to serve any of them. Occasionally there's a good one, like uh, The King's Speech was a pretty good movie about a king that 
seem very gentle and kind. But most of them are like the kings in Braveheart or other movies where they are not that great. So sometimes when we think about king, it scares us and makes us nervous. Because lordship is a scary thing. To lose control of our own lives. To think that there is somebody else that we should trust with what is going on for us. I mean, we're the ones that are living our lives, right? We're the ones that should know what's best for us. But what what David does is he respects and sees the lordship of who God is. And he moves in that direction. Now next week what we're going to talk about is the prophets. And the prophets actually tie in to this king role. Because what we're going to recognize is that even David himself cannot keep himself from running onto himself. From turning himself away from seeing God and looking only at him. He does it just a few chapters later when he sees Bathsheba. He forgets about God. But the one thing that we need to recognize, that we need to see, is that this is God's continued pursuit and revelation of who he is. And we are moving towards Matthew chapter 1 where when Matthew begins to write the genealogy of Jesus, he says, son of Abraham, son of David, that the one who is going to fulfill all of this covenant movement, the one who is going to fulfill this redemptive pursuit, the one who is the son of Abraham and the son of David is in fact Jesus, the son of God. What he is doing, what God is doing is progressively picking up the shattered pieces of his promise and revealing himself anew by putting them together. He revealed himself through the law and saying, you are to be a priest. And the promises that were given by God were not broken by him, but were broken by his people. And God comes in and he picks up those pieces and he puts them together in a beautiful mosaic that says, and now you are a nation and I have set before you a king, but he is just an image of the king that is to come. And what we will see is that Israel will take that beautiful promise and shatter it once again. And next week when we talk about the prophets, God will pick up those pieces of the promise and he will build them back together in a beautiful mosaic saying, look, Jesus is coming. The answer is there. But where does that leave us today? I have a dear friend of mine who served in churches and worked in Bible colleges And at one point in his life, he just finally said, I don't believe in God anymore. I don't believe him to be true. I don't think it can possibly be a reality. There's just too much that has happened that goes on that I feel like I can't believe in. And in a conversation that I had with him, he looked at me and he said to me, Lee, it's as if you're a child sitting in a chair in a dark room. And you keep praying for your father to come in and turn on the light. You keep begging for your father to come in and turn on the light. You cry out because you're so scared of the dark that you're asking and screaming at the top of your lungs for the father to come in and turn on the light. And Lee, 
the light's not been turned on. I would never do that to my children. This God cannot be real. Oftentimes in our lives, we feel as if we are in that dark room, crying out for the light to be turned on. But perhaps, as we see God progressively picking up the shattered pieces of his promise and bringing forth the light of who Christ is, the recognition is that, in fact, the light is on, but our, lie, our eyes are shut so tightly that we cannot see. Perhaps the revelation that is coming is that the light is on, but because we're so afraid of what we might see of ourselves, we keep our eyes shut very tightly so as not to see the light. Maybe we're so ashamed of where we've been that we can't possibly believe that the Father will pick us up out of the chair and hug us when we recognize that the light has been on all the time. And we've just closed our eyes. Maybe fear has enveloped your life. Fear of the unknown, fear of the things that are coming, fear of the things that have happened in the past. And so your eyes are shut to the light. Here's the amazing thing about the king. A king is never a king without a nation. We are never the people of God without our king. He draws us together. And that when I can't open my eyes, I need you. To open my eyes. I need you to have faith for me. And I need to have faith for you as we step into this place. Because in the history that we're seeing of God, in his story, there are so many times where it appears that eyes are shut. dancing in the light and he's calling for us to open our eyes to him let's pray father you are good to us let these words be your words if there's anything that is not yours i pray that they will pass away that they will be moved that they will burn up but if they are your words that they will take deep root in our hearts and that we will hear them clearly, that they will bring you glory and honor, that they will build us up in the knowledge of who you are and in your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, please stand and respond to this word that has been given to us by reciting with me the Apostles' Creed. Join me, please. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. And he descended to hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. 
Amen. Amen. As we come to this time of communion, you may be seated. I want to remind you that Jesus is the reason that we're here, that it is through him that we are able to see the Father, and that's through his sacrifice on the cross, which is why we participate in this supper every Sunday, that we receive grace upon grace upon grace from him, that he's given it to us, and in this reminder, we see it over and over again. It fills us up. It should fill us up. And so I want to say to you that if you're here and that you are in the midst of trying to figure out if this is a true relationship, that if God has in fact turned on the lights and you just need to open your eyes, I ask you to open your eyes. But I ask you to hold off on taking this meal. Do it with integrity. Do it with integrity. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper was over, he took the cup and said, This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you. Take, do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, we pray and ask that you will take these things that are yours, these elements that you have created, and that they will bring us grace upon grace, that we will be nourished from them. That they aren't just a mere reminder of something, but they are actually giving us energy, giving us you, that we will see you high and lifted up, that we will see you magnified in this place. Father, break our hearts and move us towards you. Remind us of who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray.